0: Do you see a notification
1: about the recording? Okay. Hello and welcome to Feel the Heal with Daisy. This is the first personal story on this series with trauma and the 12 steps. I'm so excited to have Sterling Gibson here. Um, so Sterling and I met in a 12-step fellowship and we actually worked at the same recovery treatment center for a little while. And um, we just, every time we'd run into each other, we'd get into either some type of spiritual, philosophical or trauma related conversation. And for me, it's always so refreshing and like energizing to talk to people like that. People that I know are really doing this work And Sterling, I don't know his full story, but I just, he has so much power in his story. I can feel it. You can sense it when you meet him, such a testimony. And um, so I want to, I wanted to invite him on so we could talk about his experience with the 12 steps and how he connected doing trauma work with the 12 steps and Maybe experiences in the past where he felt there was kind of a, a missing gap or a misunderstanding or um, maybe a re- misrepresentation. So that's why I wanted to bring him on. So to get started, uh, Sterling, what can you like? What do you want to introduce yourself with? Just coming on, like based on what I'm saying so far.
0: Um, I will. I will say I am. Uh, Covering addict. I'm a musician. I uh, do a lot of meditation work, uh, and like I'm one of those people that that was a chronic relapser. Like uh, I've been to treatment a little over two dozen times, and um, so I I kind of for a long time really, truly believed that that I would never succeed in recovery and that I would, you know, never, that that I was a lost cause, you know. Mm. And wow. Yeah.
1: Well, so you said you've been to treatment a little over or like around two dozen times. And so in that experience, going into the treatment centers and, you know, being a client there, um, were you introduced to the 12 steps early on?
0: Absolutely. I was. I was actually introduced to the 12 steps before I got into treatment by way of my brother, who was also an addict. Um, and I'll get into talking about him a little bit later. But um, so I was familiar with it for from a fairly young age. And uh, I'll I will say with that kind of internalized belief that i could not succeed also you know kind of developed a bit of an aversion to the 12 steps Mm. Um, because uh i've kind of over the years you know i i've built up this this kind of negative belief that you know it that it, it wouldn't work for me. Couldn't work for me. That I and I had this disconnect from from particularly like the spiritual elements of the steps. And you know I I was at a point where I I knew I was an addict. Like I had no no doubts about that. I just struggled with the belief that I could get better or that I could be connected to to anything you know beyond heroin basically.
1: Wow. That's really powerful. I mean, because what I'm thinking of is literally the second step. And it's like, we have to come to believe there has to be, but at the same time, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you bridge that gap when we need to come to believe that we can be restored to sanity? Like, so we have to have some level of hope, but at the same time, if you have had such disempowering experiences, the way that you had with, Just the grip, like the intense grip and bounding of addiction, it makes you feel so hopeless. Like no matter how far down it takes you, sometimes, yeah, that your capacity to come to that belief just isn't there and you can't will yourself into it. So from your experience, like what, how did that change for you? Or where did you get a shift in your experience where you finally had that capacity like do you think it was literally a miraculous a miracle or what what made you I, suddenly have
0: that belief i um i mean i did a lot of work obviously with the therapy and things and on i mean colloquially of course i would say you know they're all little miracles like. um but i i had kind of my bit of a transcendent moment through Uh, combination of, like, EMDR and uh, meditation practices, and kind of discovering that that I was telling myself all these stories, these plausible but untrue stories about, you know, how the future would unfold, and, and about, you know, how, you know, I, I, Talked myself into failure a lot of times and my mm-hmm. my spiritual journey really began with the the idea not of of what, having a higher power or what a higher power is but but with the the knowledge that i am not that higher power that i not only don't have all the answers but i can't be expected um mm. Through, uh, uh, I work a program as well uh, uh, based around kind of the Buddhist Four Truths and and, uh, Eightfold Path. And there's a big emphasis there on right intention and like wise actions and decisions. And, you know, I had to, had to realize that the truly wise thing to do was to accept
1: the limitations of my own college. Mm, wow that, that I'm sure was such a journey just knowing how like deeply philosophical you are <laughs> because you yeah like we I just I think that's why I enjoy conversations with you so much because we're both very philosophical and you challenge me sometimes in my own philosophies but like probably unknowingly you do that, but, um, but no, there is something you said about like that caught my attention with the EMDR. So from my experience, my experience with trauma and the 12 steps was, I now know that I had trauma long before I picked up a substance and it was the perfect combination. Obviously I feel like addiction runs in my family. So I was kind of set up in that way, but I don't always believe addiction manifests for everyone just because of a family history. I really do think trauma influences it a lot. And, um, and so I had, you know, my trauma before, but I didn't actually get into healing trauma until I was like five years into sobriety. But I realized, you know, it was a very humbling experience because I realized I had reached a point in my sobriety where the method of the 12 steps, like was starting to feel a little limited to me. And again, it's not, I don't believe it's not, I don't believe it's the 12 steps themselves. It's just the way that it's practiced and interpreted. Sometimes we kind of don't have the full language of trauma in the way we're interpreting it all the time. So some people Kind of shame themselves through the literature of the big book um so for me what kind of like what you were saying it's almost like your own narratives which are trauma narratives from what i'm hearing it's like our trauma creates these stories whether they're conscious stories or they're felt stories in our in our body in the memory of our body which you were carrying this narrative in your body that you know it's useless basically i'm useless And it's again like when we have trauma that's deeply rooted, the the very nature of trauma is it's what dwells below our level of consciousness. So you might be consciously saying, I'm desperate, I'm an addict, I'm gonna try it, I'm gonna do something different. But it's there's this deep rooted trauma belief that's saying, I am useless, I can't do this, and then it, you know, and it's inevitable, it it reenacts this this story and leads to relapse and so for you the tr- 12 steps started to really take root for you because of the the emdr work and the trauma work you were doing um that was allowing you to kind of release the grip of these stories it would you say that or
0: yeah and um if 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 People take nothing else from uh, from my story. I, I would hope it would be the fact that while the twelve steps are transformative and amazing, there's more to to doing recovery for a lot of people than that, you know, And it's all about finding finding our individual paths. And you know, not being afraid to ask for help and to seek professional help to to explore other areas one might like one might be struggling with. And you know, for me, like the EMDR was really helpful at identifying um, trauma. You know, those little t traumas that that I wasn't necessarily aware how impactful they were. You know, because i w- I like to think about little traumas' particularly in It's because so often we don't we don't even recognize them as trauma. and so they they build on themselves. And um, with working through the steps, kind of it, a lot of the inventories and things were were really helpful in identifying. These patterns of traumatic experience and and my responses to these patterns, because like you were saying, I don't I don't think necessarily we are born addicts. I think that that we are primed with biogenetics. You know that like like uh, the the gun is loaded biogenetics, cocked by our experience, and it's fired by our substances. <laughs> Um, I love
1: that! Um, That's a great, like, illustration of that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's, it's, through, like, the lens of, of, that trauma work, I was able to identify these, these issues that were really, like, monumental roadblocks that I was of which I was completely oblivious like you know I have is like I thought I knew my my traumas I had a you know when I was very young I drowned and so that was a big T trauma that was really easy to identify um when my brother who passed away uh in 2016 that was of course a, a pretty easy to identify trauma but it it wasn't until I did some work and really started to uncover how, um, how like this institutional trauma kind of developed where when I was an adolescent, I had early manifestations of some pretty severe mental illness and was hospitalized a number of times and it had it had kind of latched on as this deep fundamental belief that I was, that I was, that I was sick and that my, a big part of my identity formed around being mentally ill. And, you know, so over time, that fed into a lot of defiance in treatment, you know, and I, I didn't, I didn't even realize that it was, it was this little teenage Sterling coming out who was just fighting for his own minimum uh, sense of self within this these institutional environments, and and mm. so get out of treatment and just all of this pent up frustration and emotion typically come rocketing out into a, a hell of a relapse. Right? excuse me.
1: Wow. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. I mean, I'm just blown away with your ability to express that and really, like, just really have such a good understanding of that. Because that, like you were saying, the nature of these, what we call like little T traumas is that they are insidious and they they are sneaky and we often invalidate those experiences when really sometimes because of the nature of them they are the most sometimes disruptive and impactful to our whole system and um like you were saying like I was actually taught, having conversation the other day with someone about this in one of my yoga groups is you know the first time we do that inventory like you're saying and we're identifying these patterns a lot of times we have haunting experiences from our addiction that are you know undeniable so they're very ex- what in tr- in the language of trauma we call explicit memories so they're memories that we can tie to like a visual representation we we know an event happened we can correlate an emotion and a feeling And an impact of that experience, like you were describing with the loss of your brother, with drowning, you're like, oh, yeah, these are explicit memories. I can tie, like, I can trace them back. I can put them on my inventory. But what we're missing, and oftentimes where these occur, like you're saying, institutionalized traumas, is we're missing these implicit memories, which are memories that, again, are below our level of consciousness, but they're still being experienced, replayed, reenacted uh, over and over and over in our soma, in our bodies, in our physiology, in the way that our organs are functioning, in the ways that our neuropathways are signaling. And it's it runs really, really deep. And kind of what you described with your experience at an early age and this illness is like we have these experiences that happen and what happens is there's a message that is received that gets imprinted in our system that again gets played over and over and that essentially is a way we can define trauma is is that it's this replaying of a message that's dysfunctional really it's creating dis-ease and distress and harm overall um, so, wow, that's that's that. and and also the, what you were saying the institutionalized, like trying like, a, obviously, what you described is, you know, this message you were receiving about yourself that was I- incredibly disempowering. But some people, it's even more subtle than that. For some people, it's they're just they're unable to be authentic because it it's not safe for them to be because of the nature of these institutions we're exposed to.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, the broader social media environment and, and the, the trappings of modernity uh, tend to really, they, they, they tend to be very repressive on our, our sense of individuality. Um, and, you know, i i I would not want to be uh growing up in this day and age with with all of these these forms of media that you know these giant tech companies bringing consultants and psy- psychologists to try and you know grab our attention and hold it and uh, and it's really setting people up for for building these these really maladaptive coping mechanisms and then like also these coping mechanisms are kind of inextricable from our trauma itself and they they you know feed off one another they can show up uh in response to the trauma and end up building more trauma essentially. Um, My best example for my life was uh, I knew I had some issues with with where I had drowned at a very young age and I thought I had worked through those issues but as it turns out, I was still having these really intense kind of reactions to particularly things like breath work. It It was not until I identified the root of that as being the drowning uh that i was able to see things like whenever i get particularly stressed or anxious i tend to hold my breath and really tighten in the center of my body where i'm holding in essentially playing out that drowning, holding in all of my my oxygen you know? and that would in turn caused me to kind of panic and you know they so they they feed off one another in this cycle that that is both important to identify and honestly fairly difficult to to intercede on but you know when i was able to identify those those issues and really focus my, my work on and around them, it was very empowering.
1: Wow. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing too, it's, you know, obviously you're, you have a very great way of understanding, you know, trauma on an intellectual level, which I think is so empowering. I think that's why I'm even doing this series is just because for me, just understanding this stuff on an intellectual level, it, it almost is like, it's almost like the bottom or the top down approach to therapy. Like it's like, first, I need that cognitive understanding of trauma, the nature of trauma, the the nature of it in the body. But then eventually I can, I have to stop intellectualizing my traumas the yeah. same way the big book is designed. It's, we first learn about the disease of addiction. It goes into, you know, what is addiction? What is kind of the nature of addiction? How does it show up? But then eventually we have to drop down into the spiritual experience of it, drop down into the practical application of the principles. And so for you, the way you're describing, it's like you first had to kind of understand, okay, wow, This breath work or whatever this modality is, it could be different for any person that's supposed to, you know, quote, help me is not helping me right now. It's actually more activating or more this or more that. And, um, which by the way, like just to note this for any of the listeners, breath work is actually for a lot of people, especially if you have developmental trauma, um, where you like the ventral state, which is supposed to be the state of the nervous system where you're safe and connected. If you learned based maybe on childhood abuse or, or, you know, traumas as you were developing, you might have learned that that safe, that's what's supposed to be a safe place, um, is not safe or it's unpredictable when you could get access to that. So that tapping into that, you learned, wow, this, physiologically safe space is actually not safe and so breath work can be extremely triggering for some people and it's learn, and it's something that you have to relearn you have to reteach your body that wait, no this state is actually safe so it's about learning how to slowly move into that and like maybe do one belly diaphragmatic breath at a time not doing a full practice and slowly easing your way into it which that is when you have to surrender the logic and go into the felt sense so how did you first start navigating that
0: well um that was the the intellectualizing and such was a huge roadblock for me i i'm um if you can't tell by my my vocab like it, it my intellect has been my shield for most of my life. It has been the wall uh, against which I guard the world. You know, it's it's what I put uh, around me in in lieu of actual connection. And so it was very easy for me to come up with all of these High-minded, intellectual, plausible but untrue statements about recovery, about myself, about you know having the knowledge. And I like to say I I had a ton of knowledge about about addiction, but but it wasn't until I I relinquished that that knowledge and that sense of control that I was able to identify how little I truly knew about recovery you know um and like i said kind of towards the beginning my the the genesis of my sense of a higher power is is simply that i'm not it and that was was possibly the most freeing um uh thing that i've i've learned in my recovery journey is that not only do I not have all the answers, but I'm not supposed to. Like that—that that it is wiser to accept the limitations of of my knowledge. In in Buddhism, there's the idea of the wise mind, the beginner's mind, um, and kind of the old quote goes uh, that the uh, the possibilities are are limited in the eyes of the of the master, but in the eyes of the, master, the possibilities are limitless. Um, and so it's this idea of approaching everything with this this openness and allowing the experiences to happen without prejudging. And that's a, another big thing is when we when we're up here all the time, we form these judgments that end up uh, defining our our actions and reactions and so they become sort of self-fulfilling uh, prejudgments judgments
1: mm. It's so true like when you're living in the mind so much it creates a physiological response that like you know and actually truly when I think of Other types of therapeutic work, like parts work, I don't know if you're familiar, but like internal family systems, it's basically approaching, realizing that we all have these different parts to us. Like we all have, like you described one of the parts, which is like that little boy inside. And a lot of times our parts present themselves as the inner child, but, um, you know, like, you know, some people do get sober, uh, and they maintain their sobriety and it's just this control part that's like getting them sober and keeping sober. and then that's when some people relapse is like the control part can only keep it up for so long and we have to get sober through the the self like the you know the full whole like spiritual self and um and the way I look at like the control of the intellect is like that's just a part of us. it's like just one mechanism of control that you know we we develop maybe as like a protection mechanism, but um, can you I like I want to let that quote sink in a little bit deeper. But what can you repeat the quote that you had said?
0: So it's uh it, it, the possibilities are 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 limited in the eyes of the master, but in the eyes of the beginner, the possibilities are limitless.
1: Wow. So it's basically saying you want to keep that beginner's perspective, like, of just anything is possible, and that remaining teachable, and being wide open, which also kind of, I think, too, that's why children are such great teachers, because they don't really function in any other place but the present moment where they're just absorbing what's offered to them in that moment.
0: Yeah, and they don't don't have this kind of institutional sense of the the limitations of of any activity. They're not already in this headspace where like they, they put limits upon themselves. So they're able to more freely explore you know, uh, all the different possibilities of any situation. It's kind of going back to the, this, like, you know, the Dunning-Kruger thing where, uh, you know, to really know is to know how much you do not know, you know, and and going back to, to children, I I was fortunate um, to have a pretty healthy childhood, uh, you know, drowning notwithstanding, but i know a lot of people who when they they deal with those adverse childhood experiences which are such key indicators for for possible addiction later they they can can learn that it is unsafe to push the boundaries and really internalize the sense that they have to be rigidly coloring within the lines or
1: or their sense of self is threatened. Hmm. Wow. That's that's great point to so what what would you say is a good or for maybe even just for yourself and your own personal experience? Like what are your markers? What are your cues now when you're getting too much into reliance on like the intellect or when you're when you're falling into or maybe you know because for me too healing trauma is not linear like we can go wow like I feel like I really released the imprints and the reenactments in my body of that drowning experience and wow my breathwork practice has changed but at the same time like the more especially if we are rooted in this process of the 12 steps and constantly seeking and constantly having new experiences like I shared recently, you know, like I think past me, you, you know, in in a couple years of sobriety, I would have shamed myself if I saw dear character defects coming up or if I, if I saw myself acting out of the bedevilments and not controlling my emotional nature where now like when I see those things come up, I'm like, wow, that means I'm doing the work. It doesn't yeah. mean that I'm not doing the work. It means I am because when you are doing this deep work. It's going to get ugly sometimes. And there's going to be things, old traumas that surface that you haven't yet tapped into, like they say, the layers of the onion. So, what for someone who struggles with or who has had a history of struggling with, you know, such heavy reliance on your intellect as a sense of control? How do you remain intellectually curious, spiritually curious? but also how do you how do you what are your cues for when there is you know new a new layer of healing to to be had
0: so um i as i had said earlier i do a lot of meditation and a big part of like mindfulness practice is about identifying thoughts as they come without judging them and you know letting them pass on their own and so I I can usually tell that I, I I need to get back within myself when I I start noticing myself doing things like kind of reflexively correcting grammatical errors or you know interjecting random factoids that are you know unnecessary and and I start kind of stroking my own intellectual ego. And when I when I notice these things, because that's that's part of like when you were saying that talking about the bedevilments and the character defects showing up, how you, you used to just be ashamed by that, but now you're able to identify them and make that connection that, oh, this is something I'm doing. I I maybe can work on that, but it doesn't define me. You know, being able to identify the issue without becoming absorbed into it
1: yeah definitely that's it's it's true because i'm thinking too you know the nature of that is multi dimensional because it's like yeah the character defects come up i notice them i sense them i see them but then there, it might produce another narrative of like, because I have these defects, I am unworthy and I'm unlovable. And I think, you know, part of true humility is realizing that even within those defects, I am lovable and I'm worthy and it's just showing me where I'm not yet free and embracing that again, like this isn't a linear experience. It's about allowing these things to surface and, and explore multiple avenues of healing which you know also thinking of the 12 steps it does talk about seeking like you're saying through a practice of mindfulness um and also seeking other areas like the the 12 steps are not designed to be like one size like it's it's not designed just to end with the 12 steps they are designed for us to seek out therapies and seek out other mentors and coaches and religious practices, uh, to find, to constantly have new experiences to get us into that overall surrendered place of living in wholeness with, you know, our authenticity. Um, there was something else you said, um, it literally just popped into my head that I was like, oh, I want to circle back to that. Um.
0: Well, yeah, again, this, this idea of finding our own path is so very important. You know, um, I know uh, a big thing about that when I was talking about how I I had that hang up about this, the 12 steps is that I had this, this, uh, misunderstanding and misapprehension of, of the fact that the steps are not, not universally the one and only part of recovery. And, um, I like to think of, of, kind of it's just another tool in my tool belt and i've got to find the individualized path for myself you know the steps have been wonderfully empowering to me and also i have found other outlets that have been just as amazing you know in other aspects and they they reinforce one another um a a hugely impactful uh book for me is uh uh, one breath at a time which is a book of uh, buddhism the 12 steps and it's it was able to really help me uh internalize this sense of of the dharma which is kind of the truth and nature of life being that i am ultimately you know in in limited control of my, myself, you know, my my body does its thing pretty much on autopilot, you know. My heart beats, my eyes see, and my mind thinks. And that I you know, while I don't have control outside of myself, I can find power and find strength with the control I have over trying to kind of nudge myself into building healthier automatic patterns you know we we go through life so much on autopilot you know uh and i know for me i get caught in this rumination and stuff and and you know i'll be going through life and i'll be up here you know with these these you know racing thoughts and these these cycling thoughts and all that and and the rest of the world is is just happening, you know. I feel like for a long time uh, I was I was just kind of going through life without actually experiencing living. And that's mm. a big part of I had to make this identification that that sobriety is great but recovery is, is the goal you know and recovery is an active process that it while it begins with that abstinence it goes so far beyond that, you know? the and it's kind of going back to that beginner's mind and, and that sense that that the possibilities of recovery are this you know, I I had music is a huge part of my life, and I had really disconnected from it in my active addiction, It's something that I've been able to rediscover and and make a big big part of my creative album uh, Old activities that I enjoyed when I was younger, I used to read a lot. I read a lot again. um and the new activities like the meditation these are all these experiences that that i've had and allowed myself to have through this this journey of recovery that that i Certainly wouldn't have had an active addiction, but also I'm not sure I would have had these these experiences if I had locked myself into a, a rigid sense of this is what recovery looks like. This is specifically what it looks like for everyone and any, you know, any difference in everyone's experience is, is valid, you know? And this, this sense of I've got to find the path that is necessary and helpful for me. Because while there are commonalities in what gets us all here, you know, we all have our own story. You know, there are underlying themes through, through the human experience, but no one has lived my life but me. So I've got to find my own truth in that experience.
1: I love that, you know that you're kind of full circle with what we've been talking about. I love that you're bringing it back to that individualized process of recovery because um, you know i i I often look up the definition of recovery in like on Google, and I love sharing it when I'm in meetings because it says,, um, there's two main definitions that come up and one is a return to a normal state of health, mind, or strength. And the other is the action or process of regaining possession or control of something stolen or lost. And when I think of that in a spiritual sense, um, you know, it's that being restored to sanity, it's, um, living in rigorous honesty, meaning living in integrity with our spiritual truths and the way that we are uniquely designed to express those spiritual truths. And and that's ultimately what the 12-step uh, has to offer is it helps you get unblocked in a way that ret- restores you into this space of living in complete, wholeness and alignment with how you're here to express that and how you're here to share yourself and your unique light with humanity and the world. And, um, you know, it's the 12 and that's really like, I love how you shared your story because my goal in this series isn't to shy people away from the 12 steps. It's actually to show them that like, if you're feeling like it's limiting you, if you're feeling like the language isn't resonating with you or maybe there's you feel like you're doing it wrong this is to encourage you that like no these 12 steps are a foundation of exploration of having new experiences and there's so many other modalities to build onto them with that reinforce each other like you said they reinforce each other and even to your point that it's so unique the modalities that are going to work for for different people because You mentioned EMDR being a super powerful modality for you, which EMDR is for people who don't know that are listening. It's a form of somatic experiencing. It's a form of trauma work. And for some people, they don't have positive experiences with it for some people. And I think it's not necessarily the EMDR modality. It maybe has more to do with who your practitioner is.
0: you or know, just doctorate. where you're at
1: that day, you know. Yeah, or where you're at. Yeah, and like maybe it's too intense for some people, and that's the nature of trauma too. Is in order to heal it, we have to move into it. In yeah. order to heal it, we have to move towards it. But we can't go too much too fast. We can't force ourselves too far into a trauma and try to manipulate the experience and say, "I'm ready to heal this and get it done." it's, it's a pendulum swing. It's, you know, a pendulating experience of let me move into it just enough where I'm touching into that dysregulation where I'm I'm getting a felt experience of these patterns at play, these automatic functions, like you were saying, the autopilot, where I'm tapping into it it, uh, just enough consciously, but then I'm pulling back and allowing my body to regulate it and then let me move into it. And so it's definitely a a process. It's it's a, a practice like we're taught and it is unique to different people. And so it's the goal is more to encourage that exploration in a way that feels supported and safe with whoever you're with, whether it's a sponsor, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a spiritual guide, um, mentor, coach, whatever you're working with. Um, it's just making sure we're maximizing that felt sense of support when we are moving into this work.
0: Yeah, and absolutely, like we, we don't recover alone. You know, the 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 one thing about the as I get more time, uh, I I become increasingly aware of how accurate a lot of these. Kind of twelve-step cliches we here are, and it's so frustrating because <laughs> I'm like, wait, so you're telling me all I had to do this whole time was just take advice, <laughs> and and, uh, and it's but the the idea that this is a we program, you know, it's it's the connection to others that that for so many of us for so long we lost, and you know. One thing I was discussing this with a, a therapist yesterday was uh, this sense that that our substance use has been helpful to us. You know, it was a maladaptive coping skill, but if it wasn't of some help at, at some point, we probably wouldn't have done it. That doesn't mean that it's helpful now. It 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 ceased being helpful a long time ago. For me. Uh, but I still have to kind of be aware that, that I have to grieve that, that lost connection. Uh, And in doing so, I'm able to kind of leave it behind and, and form those new connections and make that complete break so that I can get that fresh start. And, and the other thing is that, that, you know, it's like you're saying it's not a linear journey. Like for me, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of ebbing, like the tides where I'll be doing really, really well for a while and then something else will pop up. And I had to to work on uh on allowing myself to to approach those challenges without becoming self-defeating without being like, oh, I've done all this work, but this is still going wrong in my life, so everything's wrong and we'll burn it all down. You know, uh, being able to identify that I, while I've been working on that, uh, maybe I can see this as an opportunity to do some new work and find some new uh, approaches or, or some new nuance to, to the issues and to
1: how I can. Wow. I mean, honestly, just. Uh, the sh- Like the way you shared that. Um, what like really just touched me was how you were saying. You know, we have to grieve. That solution that we once had, which was the substance abuse. It was a solution in our life and it was. A way that we felt safe at one point. It was it was the resource we had when we had no other resource for the unbearable, hopeless state of mind and body that our big book talks about. And part of the grieving is not just grieving that okay, I no longer can use this strategy as a way to cope, but I also have to accept. A lot of the delusions and grieve those delusions I have to grieve uh the pain like once you come to this sanity and you realize like whoa all of this time like I was kind of perpetuating pain through this action and it doesn't end with the substances because that's the nature of trauma it's all of that you know and the big book talks about like I have a me problem Well, it's like, no, like the me, the me problem is the trauma that I have. And I need to, and as I get to know me, and I get to know these autopilots, these things that live below my level of consciousness, and how they manifest, which is, you know, we come to a point where we might realize, wow, I'm a people pleaser. Oh, yeah, that really worked for me for a long time, or wow, I'm a workaholic. And That really worked for, or wow, I intellectualized the H-E double hockey sticks out of everything. And that was an amazing strategy for a while because it gave me accolades and validation. But now it's causing me pain and, and it's disrupting my system and causing stress. And so it's like grieving all of these things and also realizing, like you're saying, there's still a place for them in our lives. Like there's a way that we can enlighten some of these mechanisms. Like it doesn't mean the people pleasing is something that's going to be gone in entirely, but how do we bring enlightenment and consciousness to this behavior so that it's not running the show, but it's, you know, has its purpose, Um, which I think is a really good, uh, you know, point that you made with
0: that. Yeah. And um, I think being, I think grieving is the healing process. I feel like in uh, the, our broad society especially just western society in general we we there's this stigma on grieving that i feel like is is very unhealthy and i i think that the grieving process allows us to kind of clear up that that channel and and put a kind of a that you know with mental illness is the the idea of the semicolon it's this break where we can get into something new. There's a a quote I really love uh, about grief, and it's this idea that uh, grief is love with no place to go. And Mm -hmm. so we've got to find that love. We've got to identify that love, where it used to be useful, and how we can best redistribute that love going forward.
1: Wow, I love that. And, yeah, like, as you're saying for me, when I think of grief, I think of this felt experience of longing, which is like, it's like you're saying, it's a love that we've either lost or felt like, you know, that we're, we're grieving a love that was once there. Or sometimes the grief is like a love we desire that we have not yet experienced, but like our soul knows that this love is, possible for us. And for me, I believe like my higher power places that desire for a certain type of love on my heart to show me something to work for with, with my creator. But it's also learning, like you said, how to honor that, how to honor that love that is there and how to hold space for it and, and regulate like the, the longing experience while you you know embrace the way that like love is coming into your life um really powerful so just um this has been such an amazing episode I feel like we are definitely going to have to come back on the podcast because you have such a great way of really connecting a lot of the dots and I feel like a lot of people struggle with that and they struggle putting words to their experiences um and uh, any, I want to give you the opportunity to just share any closing thoughts with the listeners if, if anything's coming to mind before I close it out.
0: Yeah, I would just encourage everyone to <laughs> to remain teachable and to not to limit your, uh, yourselves to any any one prescribed path, that finding your own truth, your own path is invaluable, because ultimately, we take you wherever you go, you know, if you, you can't walk, walk someone else's path, you can only walk your own, you know.
1: I love that, yeah, I think, um, beautiful, beautiful thing to reinforce, Um, just because, again, that's, that's really what like was the seed that was planted in me that inspired me to do this series is because I got really fundamentalist. Like I I became like a fundamentalist around 12 steps around the, the program. And because of that, it's like, that's not how the 12 steps are designed to be. They don't want you to be like this fundamental person that this is the only way you be rigid about it and I that's why I'm trying to break up and show people because through my own experience I was I was limiting myself and thinking and shaming myself thinking I was doing the 12 steps the wrong way because I wasn't having a spiritual experience and it was because of my trauma and you know the 12 steps I kept going through the 12 steps as I was seeking guidance for my trauma and I, I realized like, wow, I was, I wasn't, I wasn't getting it, you know? And so I love that you closed with that. Thank you so much for coming on everybody listening. I will put in the show notes ways that you can get in touch with me or Sterling. We love to hear your feedback. We want to know how you're resonating with our message and our content and just our experience in general. And, um, Can't wait to have him back on. So thank you again for joining me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.